With the severe weather problems currently being seen in the US Northeast and Louisiana, climate change is on the news and on our minds. What can the agriculture sector do to help? More optimal use of nitrogenous fertiliser, for example. Methane is much more potent than carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is even more potent. And if you're in need of business advice to help you through the Elms transition, there could be a new place to turn. Basically offers a free programme of support to help farm businesses prepare for the upcoming changes uh, in relation to the agricultural transition plan. Plus we'll hear from a Lincolnshire food producer and find out how they're staying local and connecting with the children they supply. Sean's here with a look at the harvest and agronomy, Kit reviews the markets and we'll see what the weather holds for this week. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning. Here we are in September, the month of change and a definite autumnal feel in the air, although it is getting warmer later this week. Hope you've had a good week. Last week, we heard from Lincolnshire County Council applying for funding for trees for farmers in the county. Well, now grants of up to £5,000 are being made available to English farmers and landowners who restock trees under DEFRA's new Tree Health Pilot Scheme, which is open for expressions of interest. Search the DEFRA website for details. The Health and Safety Executive has called for evidence from farmers on the impact of lead shot on the environment, wildlife and people. Research by the Wildlife and Wetlands Trust shows that between 50 and 100,000 wildlife die each year in the UK as a result of ingesting lead shot. The authorities are looking to phase this out, but shooting and countryside organisations are calling for a transition period to allow manufacturers to change. The HSE call for evidence runs until the 22nd of October. And Love Lamb Week continues until the 7th at a crucial time for the sector as the government seeks free trade deals with other countries. If you're getting involved, remember to use the hashtag Love Lamb Week in any promotional activity. Many farms have diversified over the years, mainly for economic prosperity or sometimes just to survive. Willoughby Foods developed from being a traditional Lincolnshire arable and cattle farm to one of the main suppliers of school meals in the area. What are they doing to stay local and connect with the children they supply? Here's owner-director Stuart Ashton. I found a recording of an interview I did with yourselves going back in about 2004 when we first started. And when we first started, the desire was to try and feed the local produce to local children um, from word go. I'm being a farmer and being a farmer from South Lincolnshire, we are surrounded with some of the best produce. Um, and that still remains our goal, to try and feed and educate local school children best we can to realise what's around them and to engage with it, both by understanding it, but most importantly, by eating it. You talk about locally grown food and so on. Where do you source your ingredients from? The big disappointment for us has been that sourcing local is not as easy as we thought it might be because you are also working at a a very tight price point. Our meals are £2.30 a day and for that we are cooking, delivering the meals and bringing it all back in again and washing it up. So we're on a very, very tight margin. And when you then start looking at trying to source locally and seasonally, and I'll give you an example of Calabrese, for instance. It is the one vegetable that every child I've ever met will eat, but it is not available all year round, so you have to look further afield. And so sorting locally has been a challenge and continues to be a challenge. So we then have to move our sites to trying to source from local suppliers who, to the best of their efforts, are the link in the supply chain to local producers. 
Let's talk about this new project of yours, an allotment at the side of the road with a large Willoughby Foods School garden sign on it. What's going on there? <laughs> so we have a, a two-acre strip of land beside the A52 uh, near, next to the farm that is, is neither, neither here nor there for cropping. And I've now divided it into sort of 30-metre uh, square plots and we're going to encourage schools to come uh, to grow the seedlings at school and then to visit the farm to plant their seedlings in these plots. And then we're hoping to harvest the produce and put it in the school meals as a completing a cycle for schools to follow that all the way through. Excellent. And you're providing the seeds? And we'll provide the seeds. So all we're going to ask schools to do is to uh, get them to germinate and get them to a, a certain growth stage and then we'll ask them to come and plant them out in the plots. I mean, what a great way of, of, you say, completing the circle, but also getting the kids involved. Well, we think so. Over the years, we've done a lot of school visits to the farm. And and if I'll be brutally honest, it has been a real struggle to get schools to come and engage on the farm. But we want to re-engage with that the best we can, having had, like everybody, 18 months off any sort of contact with our customers. All right, Stuart. Well, good luck with the project. And many thanks for joining us on the farming programme this morning. Thank you very much. As we move further into the Agricultural Transition Plan, some assistance is on offer. Local farmers can access free, tailored business advice this autumn from the Lincolnshire Rural Support Network, LRSN. To tell us about it, here's Head of Charity Amy Thomas. Good morning, Amy. This all sounds very interesting. What can you tell us? The project is being run with uh, the Plaintiff Countryside Fund. It's funded by DEFRA as part of the Future Farming Resilience Fund project um, and basically offers a free programme of support to help farm businesses prepare for the upcoming changes uh, in relation to the Agricultural Transition Plan. And what's the involvement of the the Prince's Countryside Fund in this? Is it just money? So the Prince's Countryside Fund are the lead partner in the project. So uh, the DEFRA Future Farming Resilience Fund project uh, funding opportunity was too big for LRSN to go to um, on our own. We're a small charity um, and we we wouldn't have been able to to do that. So what the Prince's Countryside Fund had done was to pull together uh, a number of small county-wide farming support groups um, under one umbrella and to make a central application. So they are supporting us with the workshop materials um, and are the lead partner with DEFRA, um, which gives us uh, the opportunity to participate in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do so. And what kind of support are we talking about? How is this going to be delivered? Is it sort of online, classrooms, remote? How are you going to do it? Well, if at all possible, we want to do it face to face, but obviously uh, everything's changing all the time at the moment. And so if we have to take it online, we absolutely will. Um, and there'll be a combination of workshops that people can join um, and one to one more tailored support. Uh, So we'll have two workshops up front. Uh, One will be a business workshop, which will help people to understand and prepare um, and to think about uh, what the impact of removal of subsidies will be for them. And then the second workshop will be around looking at environmental opportunities, um, followed by the one-to-one support, which will be tailored to the individual. Right now, who's eligible for this? So it's any farm business in Lincolnshire, um, so irrespective of uh, where they are located or what sector they're farming in. And uh, the only eligibility criteria is that they are only taking part in one programme funded by DEFRA, um, which I know might get a little confusing for people. Okay, if if you are able to do this uh, face-to-face, where and when is it taking place? 
the WEN will be um, in October and November for the first workshops um, and then the following workshops which we will decide depending on need of the other people who are participating will take place between uh, November and around January with the one-to-one -one workshops kicking in in February. Um, the program will end at the end of February. Um, in terms of where, uh, we're very fortunate in that we're able to run the workshops more than once. So what we will do is make sure that we are sort of covering um, different geographies within the county to give everybody the best opportunity to attend. But what we also do is record them so that people can access them online as well, just to make sure that they're as accessible to people as possible. Excellent. Well, it's great news. Where can we find out more information, Amy? So there's more information on our website um, or alternately uh, give us a call at LRSN or drop me an email um, and I'm more than happy to, to give, a, give some more information. Okay, Amy. That's Amy Thomas, Head of Charity at LRSN. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. That website, if you'd like to know more, is lrsn.co.uk. Thanks, Amy. As we move into the month of change that is September, how's the harvest going? And what advice does our crop doctor, Sean Sparling, have for us this week? Morning, Sean. Yeah, very good morning to you, Steve. Yes, September's here already. That's come quick, hasn't it? The Swifts have already gone as well, and a fair bit of harvest to get. And it does feel a bit autumny to me. I don't know about you. It doesn't really help when we get weeks like last week when there's harvest to be done. I think with 23 millimetres of rain for me in August and mostly drizzle in the last 20-odd days of August, it's it's probably been the driest wet harvest I've ever been involved in and a blooming pain for all that as well. Still, a better week forecast, so we should get those comments combines rolling towards some sort of conclusion. They always used to say that there will always be enough good weather for another harvest once you've finished the harvest you're on, so we have to stay positive. The harvest still well underway, as I said. Spring beans going off quite quickly now in the field, and glyphosate pre-harvest tends to do far more damage to the rubbish in the bottom than it ever will do to the bean plants themselves, so it's important to have the majority of your pods black. That means you're around about 30% moisture or less, and keep the water volumes up as well, so that you get the glyphosate down to the rubbish in the bottom where it's needed and remember that all seed rape needs a pH of around 6.5 or higher it really doesn't like even slightly acidic soils and I think sometimes we don't do enough lime testing these days I used to do an awful lot when I first came into this industry 30 years ago people don't seem to do so much these days depends on the soil type it does vary between light soils and heavy soils and organic soils but as a mean soil say a moderately heavy clay soil you need need around two tonnes to the acre of ground limestone or screen chalk to lift the pH from a 6 to a 7. That's five tonnes per hectare to take it from a 6 to a 7 or a 6.5 to a 7.5. Um, if you're using Limex, you need a lot more than that. You need five tonnes to the acre on similar soil type or 12.5 tonnes per hectare to do the same job of lifting it one pH point. So just make sure that you're using appropriate doses of whatever product you're using. Also, once the pH does go above 7.5, you do start to lock up nutrients. So it's a false economy to just chuck lime on for the sake of doing it. Understand what you're dealing with before you start. You'll lock up nutrients like manganese, magnesium, for example. So 
get the old BDH line testing kit out or one of these fancy electrode testers, but do know what you're dealing with before you start. And low pHs can encourage things like club root in oilseed rape as well. So it is worth a few hours of your time sampling just to get ahead of that game. It's not all about phosphate and potassium indices. The pH or the potential of hydrogen is crucial to the plant's availability to those nutrients. Also worth remembering that you can apply up to 30 kilos per hectare, of course, of nitrogen to oilseed rape in the autumn, whether that's from an organic manure or a bag. But with a lot of straw being chopped and left in the fields preceding oilseed rape this year, that nitrogen helps to feed the bacteria who then use that as fuel to help them break down that straw. Mind you, I think a bit of rain on these oilseed rape this fields would do way more good than anything we can chuck on from a bag at the moment. As I said earlier, very, very dry out there for such a wet harvest. Cabbage stem flea beetle, for me, not really a big issue still in my oilseed rape, although I am hearing reports of issues further south, so keep your eyes open for more than 25% of that leaf area being affected, or adult levels increasing in your water traps or on your sticky trap. You can find the shot holing damage quite easily, but it's still far more about slugs, rabbits and birds out here for me than it is for cabbage stem flea beetle. If you do hit those damage levels requiring treatment, avoid conditions where intense sunshine, high light intensity, windy conditions, wet conditions, because the adult beetles are far less active in those conditions and far more likely to go and shelter and as the pyrethroids we have access to these days are contact rather than residual, you have to physically hit those beetles. So just after dark on dull days, still days, all seem to have far better results from those conditions over the last couple of years. But with a huge proportion of the cabbage stem flea beetle population resistant to pyrethroids, it's now the case that good luck will probably be the most useful aspect. If you know that you've hit those adults, by the way, if you've been out and sprayed them and they aren't dying, multiple multiple applications will not only be a waste of your time and your money, they will be very, very damaging to the beneficials. And remember, the aim is to get the oilseed rate plants growing faster than the damage is being caused, so that when egg laying starts in two or three weeks' time, the plants are at least big and ugly enough to stand some sort of chance of making it through April and beyond. It's incredibly frustrating for me as a consultant and a crop advisor that we're growing crops that having our fingers crossed and hoping for the best is our main angle of control. But the swallows, the martins and the other insectivorous birds and beasts out there are doing their very best to help us. Sugar beet, cercospora levels increasing, bacterial leaf spot quite widespread, but an awful lot of nutritional deficiencies out here. If you did apply a fungicide around 28 days ago or so, you may now be thinking about putting a second one on. Drop some manganese and magnesium in there because that will help clear up some of these nutrient deficiencies. Uh, Strob-based fungicides, by the way, do have two aspects of control. They have a physiological effect on the plant as well as disease control by encouraging those plants to scavenge nitrogen so that fungicide itself is going to help green those crops up. Cercospora control from things like Escolta though is not particularly brilliant so do manage your expectations. If you've got Cercospora in your crop it's not going to go away. Very little virus about as projected this year although odd fields as you drive around the county do have those telltale yellow circular patches in them so if you haven't registered for virus on the website by now 
now. You had to do that by the 31st of August. You are now too late. Although reading the rules about compensation and how that works, I think if you do qualify, I think Saturn has to be in the cusp of Sagittarius. I think that has to happen on a Tuesday morning at three o'clock or 10 past three or something to qualify. It's very complicated. So hats off to you if you do actually qualify for compensation. So look, a warmer, drier week looms. Harvest still going on. The Swifts have already gone home. Let's crack on and see what the next seven days bring. Thank you, as ever, Sean. If you want to contact Sean, just head to sasagronomy.co.uk. Let's talk climate change and what we can do to help. I spoke the other day to Toril Big, Chief Carbon Reduction Officer for Tunley Engineering. Firstly, Toril, can you clarify for us the difference between carbon neutral and net carbon zero, please? As a country, we are attempting to reach net zero carbon by 2050. And we need to do that by cutting carbon emissions as well as offsetting those emissions that absolutely need to remain. When we look at carbon neutral, we're looking at reducing our carbon footprint with offsetting only, but we need for climate change, we need to actually reduce carbon emissions and not just plant more trees. Okay, so what do you mean by offsetting? How can we actually do that, particularly in agriculture? With offsetting for carbon, people often think it's about planting more trees as well as prevention of deforestation. But there is a reduction of methane production. Methane is much more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And you can invest as a carbon offset in cattle feed that reduces the amount of methane the cattle produce. Cows obviously produce methane by the way that they actually ferment their food when they chew on the grass and they produce um, methane as part of that. Um, It's a fermentation process and the food they're given just reduces the amount of fermentation. So there is less methane produced as a result of that. We know that cows produce methane and there's been arguments about well if we didn't eat meat and we didn't have cattle there would be an awful lot less methane and therefore an awful lot less carbon around the planet. Yes, it has been said. Because methane is much more potent than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas at warming the planet, and because beef in particular is very carbon heavy, there's much more carbon as a result of making beef than as a result of making chicken or lamb, for example. It does contribute much more to greenhouse gases, global warming, than other types of meat food. But Food is a completely essential thing. We do need food, don't we? So if we can reduce the amount of methane produced while continuing to have what is necessary for both the economy and for people to have food available to them, then that's always a good thing. There's something like 28 times as much global warming from one methane as there is from one carbon dioxide. So if you cut one methane out, you're doing the work of cutting out 28 carbon dioxides. There still seems to be much denial around climate change, doesn't there, with comments such as, well, it's only one degree increase. That's nothing to be concerned about, surely. So global warming has resulted in an increase in global temperatures of 1.2 degrees so far. If we reach 1.5, then we can be looking at some very serious effects on us of climate change. I mean, it'll affect crops. It'll affect the weather. It will affect our economy. And it doesn't sound a lot, but it has caused greater evaporation of water from the seas. So you get greater rainfall. We're seeing landslides. We're seeing floods. All of those things will affect us all very greatly. And agriculture in particular stands to be badly affected by extreme weather events. 
So methane, we know about carbon in soil. What else can farmers do to contribute, Torrell? More optimal use of nitrogenous fertiliser, for example. As we discussed, methane is much more potent than carbon dioxide. Nitrous oxide is even more potent. There's 273 equivalents of carbon dioxide in one N2O, nitrous oxide. Then there's the opportunity to leave borders wild and unsown and untilled. And there's reduction in runoff to the to the waterways around the edges of the field by raising the edges so that when we do get heavy rain, it doesn't wash everything off into the water. I think farmers, like everybody else, can do all of the normal things we can all do to reduce our carbon emissions. Diesel, for example, could be exchanged for electric vehicles. In your buildings and in your homes, you can exchange lighting for LED lighting. You can change from gas boilers to heat pumps. So there are things that farmers can do that are actually the same as all of us. We can all make those changes. All right, Toriel, thank you so much for joining us on the farming programme. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thanks very much. You can read more about this and Toriel's work at tunley-engineering.com. From the climate to the markets now, with this weekly update, here's Open Fields' Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. This week, Hurricane Ida left its mark on the grain markets as damaged exports facilities and loss of power disrupted logistics in the busy UF Gulf ports, making them inoperable for an undetermined length of time, which will result in lower exports in those facilities which are affected. The market has decided that this is negative for prices, although, presumably, those exports will be switched to other ports or origins until normal service can be resumed. In the meantime, there is a flurry of tender activity by major importers, Egypt, Algeria, Iran, Pakistan, Turkey, amongst others, some of whom have passed on recent tenders due to high prices, only to find prices have continued to move higher still. With the Canadian, Russian and EU export availability combined likely to be 15 to 20 below last month's USDA report, it is difficult to see who, apart from the US, will pick up the slack until the new crop Australian wheat is available. Prices are off recent highs, but the fundamental bull case for wheat remains intact. If and when China returns for wheat and maize in the weeks and months ahead, it will only fuel demand. And the equation, which will be understated with consumers domestically and internationally, will be undercooked. Looking at barley, harvest muddles on in various regions across the UK. All eyes on what the post-wet weather break harvest quality is like here in the UK. Further afield, we are hearing that the Danes continue their harvest with rain also affecting progress and some slightly disappointing yields in some of their later crops. Eastern Europe harvest has seen largely acceptable crop produced, which, given the weather issues over the last few weeks, the outcome has been better than first envisaged. Back here in the UK with the Northern European harvest in the home straight, we have seen the UK free on board market values maintained, also helped by the weaker British pound, which has kept under the level of the domestic market. With feed values trading in the nearby range, premiums have seen a small squeeze on the basis that the product needs spot movement to take advantage of MAGB terms. For more information and specific prices for anything to do with feed barley or malting barley, please do speak to your open field farm business manager. Oilseed rape? China had maintained their steady purchase pace with almost daily reports of cargoes being purchased. This, for now, has answered some of the questions over demand and adds a brighter spot to recent news flows. Crude oil values have been rebuilding slowly since the end of August drop over demand concerns and took the news that OPEC Plus has maintained its gradual output hike in its stride. Closer to home, domestic rapeseed values have retreated with sympathy with external drivers as the futures 
with circa 13 euros down over the week. All this in the face of the StatsCan report now being pointing to a 20% drop in Canadian canola output with the official figures at 14.7 million tonnes, which is the smallest in nine years, down from 18.7 million last year, and early expectations of the 2021 at circa 19.5 million tonnes. With growers keen to finish up harvest on other commodities, the physical markets are challenging in the short term and the focus will be on the increased importance of the USDA September report. So looking to prices this week, feed wheat for September is 184 to 186, November 187 to 189, February 190 to 193 and May 193 to 196. Milling wheat premiums are currently 22 to 25 pounds. Feed barley for September 169 to 171, November 171 to 173, February 173 to 176, and May 176 to 179. Malting barley premiums are circa 30 to 35 pounds. Oilseed rate for September is 482 to 485, November 485 to 489, February 489 to 494, and May. 494 to 498. Many thanks, Kit. Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Their website for contact and information is openfield.co.uk. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Pretty much dry, calm and warm, certainly for the first half of the week. Rain's expected from midweek, staying warm though. A light easterly today, dry with some sunshine and highs of 23 Celsius this afternoon. The wind veers round to the south overnight, staying calm for Monday, which will be another dry day. Warm too, we may see temperatures up to 27 inland. Tuesday sees a more varied wind pattern, but still quite light, dry, hot and sunny again. Things change on Wednesday, with the breeze picking up from the southeast into the mid-teens MPH. Some rain expected later in the day, but still warm, with highs expected around 25 Celsius. And there's more rain expected for the end of the week. Light winds are likely to turn more westerly, but still staying warm with highs in the low 20s. Finally, many thanks to Andrew Ward for letting me have a go at driving a combine the other day. Thoroughly enjoyed it, but thank goodness for GPS is all I can say. Andrew tweeted the video if you want to have a look, at wheat underscore daddy. That's it for now. The Week in Agriculture returns next Sunday at 7 on Lynx FM and podcast, or ask your smart speaker to play the farming programme. Have a good week.